It was a number of years ago now that uh, USA Today, which, which publishes a poll in every edition of the, of the newspaper, asked a really, really interesting poll question of its American readership. The question was this. If you could ask God or some supreme being one question and be assured of an immediate and direct answer, what question would you ask? It's a fascinating question, isn't it, to reflect on? What, what's, the, what's the one question that you would ask of God given the opportunity? In fact, I want you to not, um, I don't want you to tell anybody what the question is you would ask. I want you to guess, see if you can guess, the, the number one answer, the most popular question that people said that they would ask God if they were given the opportunity. So turn to your neighbor, if you're comfortable doing so, turn to your neighbor and tell your neighbor not what question you would ask, tell your neighbor what question you think was the most popular question that people ask, and then I'll give you the top three answers. Go. Okay, okay, let's, okay. Let's, uh, let's sort this out, okay? 100 people surveyed, probably more than that. Top three answers on the board. Number, to keep our game show theme going, I guess. The number three answer, what is the one question you would want to ask of God? 16% of the people said they would want to ask God, why do bad things happen? A question of evil, really important question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to me? Just explain to me where evil comes from. Really important question but not the most important question according to the poll. The second most popular question, right around the same level of popularity, 19% of the people said the question they would ask is, will I have life beyond death? What happens after the great divide? And with all the books being published about near-death experiences, 90 minutes in heaven, heaven is for real, proof of heaven, all this kind of stuff. Our culture is super fascinated with what happens after death. And it was, it was a really significant question, but only for about 20% of the people, not nearly the most popular question. The most popular question that people would want to ask God at almost double the rate of the second most popular question at 34%, the question was, what's my purpose in life? Why, God, am I here? Now, what was interesting about the survey is you would perhaps be tempted to think that there would be a difference in the answer to that question between people of faith and people without faith. And the, and the truth was, the statistics showed no difference whatsoever, that People, especially people with faith in Jesus and people who have no faith in Jesus, showed about exactly the same, about exactly the same tendency to ask the question about meaning and purpose in life. It seems like, as Jeff was talking about last week, we have this fundamental need as human beings to believe that our lives have purpose and meaning, that we're here for a reason, that we want at the end of our life in review, to look back and not just see a life that was successful, but a life that was valuable. I mean, success is such a pathetic goal for life. Anybody can buy a BMW. Um, did my life have value? Was it significant? Was it consequential? At the end of the day, 
Did my life matter? And the question that more than one third of people ask would want to ask God is, what do I do to make my life matter? Why am I here? What contribution am I called to make? And the purpose of our series for this month, what does it look like to answer God's call. And Jeff got us started thinking about that last week by sort of clearing the deck and reminding or, or teaching us that every person in this community is called. That there's not this two-tiered system of people who live meaningful, important lives who make significant contributions that matter and change the, the way the world is and then there's everybody else. Everybody's life matters. Everybody has been called to be a priest to mediate the divine loving presence into the world, to bring the presence of God into the world and bring the world into the presence of God. That we are all called. In fact, Jeff referenced this passage from 2 Peter chapter 2 where Peter says of the church that we are God's chosen people, we're a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And it's actually... Now, as we pick up this conversation and press into what does it look like to live my life with a purpose, I want to press into that text a little bit more. Because it turns out that Peter, when he said that, that the church is God's chosen people, royal priesthood, and a holy nation, is actually quoting an Old Testament idea from the book of Exodus. And that text and the story out of Exodus began to intrigue me because all the way through the scriptures... The story of the book of Exodus becomes the sort of quintessential calling story. This is the story of God calling people to himself for a purpose. And I thought if we're going to explore the whole issue of calling, we should probably start by digging into that story and try and understand what God's calling looks like and so that's where we want to begin this morning with the story of Exodus starting in Exodus chapter 19. Now if you are not a church person, you're not a Bible reader, maybe new to this whole faith thing, you may still be familiar with this story because uh, it's possible that you've seen the movie The Ten Commandments, you know at Easter time they show it or um, the movie The Prince of Egypt. It's the story of God rescuing Israel from slavery in Egypt under the leadership of Moses. Remember, Moses is in diplomatic negotiations with Pharaoh. Kind of, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no way. And so God keeps raining plagues down on Egypt until eventually Pharaoh cracks and he says, okay, you, know, you can all go. And he sets them all free. And as soon as they leave, you know, Pharaoh changes his mind and he rallies his army and he chases them down. And then, and then the story goes that God parts the Red Sea and, and the entire nation of Israel crosses through the Red Sea on dry ground to freedom, rescued by God. And it says in Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, it says, on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain, in front of Mount Sinai. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord God called him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell to the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagle's wings, and brought you to myself. The story of the call of Israel, God calling Israel to be his people, 
is a story that begins with God rescuing Israel from slavery in Egypt, um, from centuries of slavery, doing something for them that they couldn't possibly do for themselves. And he says, and bringing them to himself. What does that mean? That God says, I I rescued you to bring you to myself. Well, in their time in Egypt, the Bible tells us in different places, Israel was surrounded by the gods of the Egyptians. And in time, they embraced the gods of the Egyptians and worshipped the gods of the Egyptians right alongside the God of the Bible, the God of their forefathers. So that's how ancient religion worked. You didn't have one god as a nation. You had a whole pantheon of gods. And every one of the gods had a a specific purpose. They had a specific role to play. So you'd have a a god of money and a god of fertility and a god of farming and food. And you'd have a god of war and a god of health and a god of success at work and a god of family and a god of safety. And, And you have all of these gods that you worship. And the way ancient religion worked is that you don't love the gods and the gods don't love you. You are simply trying to prove your devotion to them in such a way as to convince them to give you what you need for life. And Israel, over the course of the time that they've been living in Egypt, came to worship not just the God of their forefathers, but all these other gods as well. And God rescues them from slavery in Egypt. And he says, I'm bringing you now to myself. He says, I want you for myself. I want us to be exclusive. You will be my people and I alone will be your God. Instead of depending on Min for fertility and Osiris for food and Ptah for success at work and you know, Alman for strength and all these gods, I want you to depend on me for everything. I want you to depend on me in everything. I want to be your everything. I want you to myself. The Bible says in a lot of places, that God is a jealous God. And people sometimes ask me about that. What does that mean? Jealousy is so ugly. Why, why does it say that God is a jealous God? Because God is as eager to share us and our affections with other people and things as my wife would be to share, if I were to share my affection with other women. God is a jealous God. He wants and deserves us for himself. And then he says in verse 5, The the next verse, he says, now obey me fully and keep my commandment. He says, and what I want from you is I want you to be exclusively devoted to me. I am exclusively devoted to you. I want you to be exclusively devoted to me. And if you will be, this is what it says, if you obey me fully, verse 5 and 6, and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you, and here are our words, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests or a royal priesthood and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. God says, here's the deal. I rescued you from slavery. I did for you what you could not do for yourself in order to Um, invite you into an exclusive relationship with me where I am your God and you are my people and I'm devoted uh, to you and you are devoted to me and if we can live in this relationship together then he says out of all the earth is mine he says out of everything that I have in the world you will be my prized possession because You will be a kingdom of priests. You will be a community of people 
who mediate the presence of God into the world, who, who take the, bring the presence of God to the world and bring the world into the presence of God, you will live out my calling as a kingdom of priests. But then he says, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I think that and is one of the most significant little words in this entire conversation. Actually, in Hebrew, the word and is just one letter. It's a wuh. That little wuh is a game changer in this conversation about what it means to live out the calling of God in your life. What it means to answer God's call and to live life with a purpose. Because what God is saying is that if we will commit to being exclusively devoted to him and he devoted to us, then he will make us the mediators of his presence in the world and or if we will also be a holy nation. What God is saying is my calling on your life has, is about more than just what I've called you to do. It's about more than being a kingdom of priests, more than simply what you will accomplish to mediate my presence in the world. It's about more than what you will do. It is also about who you will be. It's as though God is saying, You cannot do what I've called you to do until you are ready to be what I've called you to be. You cannot be the kingdom of priests until you are ready to first be the holy nation. We cannot answer the question of how God, of of God's call on our life, of how God has uniquely and specifically created us to make a unique contribution to his kingdom purposes in the world. We cannot answer that question until we first answer the questions about what it means to be holy. So the word holy simply means to be distinct, to be set apart, to be different, to be unlike all the others. God says, if you want to be my treasured possession, my prized possession, if you want to be my kingdom of priests that mediate the divine loving presence into the world, you have to also be holy, different, unique, distinct. You are going to be different than all other people and every other nation on earth, every other community on earth. You'll be unique and distinct in that you will be like me. One of the refrains that goes all the way through the Old Testament is, be holy as I, your God, am holy. Be like me in the world, which is to say, be different than everybody else because you are radiating my character into the world in such a way that people can look at you and know what I am like. And truth be told, you cannot answer the call of God on your life, on what God wants you to do, until you have first considered the call of God on your life in terms of what God has called you to be. Until that conversation is as important as the other, we will never live the life of purpose and meaning that God has called us to live to its fullest extent. So what does it mean to be a holy nation, to be a holy community, to be distinct and different than the rest of the world as a part of God's call? Well, this morning I want us to think about four callings 
that we need to answer if we're going to answer the question or if we're going to become what God has called us to become so that we can do what God has called us to do. And the first one is this. If we're going to be the kind of holy nation that can be used as the kingdom of priests, if we're going to be what we're called to be so that we can do what we're called to do, we have to answer God's spiritual call. We have to be different than the whole rest of the world in our relationship with God. What does that mean? I think first and foremost, that means that we have to allow God to rescue us from slavery just like he rescued Israel. We need to answer God's call or allow God to save us. See, the Bible says that every one of us is a slave to sin just like the Israelites were slaves to the Egyptians and unable to rescue ourselves, just like Jeff was talking about last week. But God stepped into the world. See, what sin is, by the way, that's just a a Bible word to describe the kind of destructive ways, the destructive patterns of thinking and feeling and behaving that I get into when I wander away from God. That's what sin is. It's destructive thoughts and feelings and behaviors that are the result of wandering away from God. God says, I've come, I've sent Jesus into the world so that through his life and his death and his resurrection, he can save you from that destructive behavior. He can call you back to me. He can forgive you and heal you and transform you so that you can become everything that I've created created you to be if we're going to live into the call of God we have to first answer God's call of salvation and to say in faith I'm going to trust Jesus to be my God and my savior and the leader of my life and I I just have to say if you um, and to make that decision and then to express that through the act of baptism so often we we kind of talk about baptism as though it's this optional thing in the life of following Jesus. When you're ready, when you feel like it, when you get around to it, sometime, whatever, get baptized, you know, if you want to follow Jesus. The point is the Bible doesn't know any other way for people to make the decision to become followers of Jesus than baptism. Being baptized is the way to choose to follow Christ. And so if you're in this place and you've been on this journey and you're like, you know what, I need to make Jesus my God and my Savior and the leader of my life, the one who forgives me and heals me and transforms me, I need Jesus to do that in my life. Or if you've already made that choice and just have never gotten around to being baptized, I need you to email baptism at southridge.cc and tell us that you're going to be involved in our baptism in the last week of September. Because the first part of answering God's call is responding to his invitation to salvation. But, but God's spiritual call is actually more than that. Because it's not just about saying yes to Jesus, you know, save me, forgive me. It's about living then in the kind of exclusive, passionate love relationship to which God was calling Israel. He says, I rescued you because I wanted you for myself. I wanted your exclusive devotion. I wanted you to leave all these other gods behind and focus your entire life on me. And you know what? Even though we live in a world where we don't generally worship statues made of stone or or wood or whatever, we don't live in a world that worships idols, at least in our part of the world, we have gods in our lives that compete with God for our attention. 
See, a God is really just anything in your life that you believe is indispensable for your happiness and meaning. Anything you couldn't imagine living without. And because that's what a God is, we idolize all sorts of things. We idolize work and we idolize marriage and we idolize sex and romance and we idolize um, success and we idolize comfort and luxury and money and health and safety, security. We idolize all sorts of things in our life. And they become competitive with God for our attention and our devotion and our allegiance and our commitment. And God says, the reason I saved you is because I want to be the singular, number one, most important thing in your life. All these other things are good gifts from God that he invites us to embrace. But as gifts from him, God says, I want you to want me, not just the stuff you can get from me. And answering God's spiritual call is about living like God is the singular most important thing in your life and passionately pursuing that relationship with him being as passionate about our love for God as we are for all of our other relationships in our world you know living a life of continual conversation with God in prayer living a life devoted and immersed in the scriptures to discover what God reveals about himself and about life and about us and the life he's calling us to 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 live a life that's utterly dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit for everything because we can do nothing apart from God it's about being committed to gathering regularly for worship, to be with your spiritual family and profess our love for Jesus and celebrate his resurrection every seven days and its impact on our life. It's about living day to day doing the kind of spiritual exercises that keep us connected and encountering God and hearing from God in a daily way like the kind of thing we publish in the, in the mini mag from September to June. It's about living our lives passionately devoted to nurturing this love for Jesus Christ as the single most important thing in our lives. That's what it means to answer the spiritual call. To be different than all of the rest of the world in the way we relate to God. It's not just a spiritual call, though it's a personal call. It's about being different than all of the rest of the world in the way that we relate to ourselves. Um. It's about, for example, finding healing in Jesus Christ. I think if sin, if the definition of sin is that it's the destructive behavior that comes, the thoughts, feelings, and and, uh, behaviors that are destructive that come when we wander away from God, then as we passionately pursue God, it stands to reason that we are increasingly become more whole and more complete human beings, more healthy. I believe that followers of Jesus Christ should be the people who are becoming the most healthy people on the entire planet. That we should be the most emotionally healthy people on the planet. That we should be the most relationally healthy people on the planet. That we should have the healthiest coping mechanisms for when life falls apart. We should be the pleading with God on a daily basis to, uh, to bring healing to the dysfunction and brokenness of our lives. We should be the most authentic and vulnerable people that have ever lived in community because we're so desperate to have our community understand what's really going on so that they can walk with us to healing. We should be the first in line for therapy in the counselor's office when things get really broken. We should be the most committed to working the program and most immersed in recovery when we're dealing with addiction. We should be the most supportive people on the planet in walking with others to wholeness and restoration. We should just be becoming healthy. We shouldn't tolerate the brokenness that happens inside of our lives. 
And it's not just about healing, it's about transformation, it's about being changed in our character. As those who follow Jesus Christ and are being filled with his spirit, our lives, I mean this is what the word holy means, be holy as I'm holy, our lives ought to reflect what God is like. We should be ruthless in addressing the anger issues in our lives, the bitterness and stubbornness and unforgiveness. We should be ruthless in addressing the lust in our lives, in the looking at porn and the fantasizing about people who aren't our spouse. We should be the most committed people on the planet to our marriages and the most intolerant of inappropriate sexual relationships. We should be the people of the deepest integrity, the most honest people who've ever lived, people who mean what we say and say what we mean. We should be the last people on earth who would ever fight for our rights or try to prove that we're right or try to fight for what we deserve but instead just live as humble servants to everybody else. We should be the first ones who to love our enemies, to love the people who hate us and hurt us. Our lives should just carry this aroma of Jesus Christ in a way that makes other people look at us and say, these people are completely different than anybody I've ever met. It says in James, confess your sins to each other, vulnerably, openly, and pray for each other so that you would be healed. Our life with God in being a holy nation and being different than everybody else in the earth should be a life of us finding wholeness and transformation because of our life with Jesus Christ. But it's more than that. It's not just a spiritual call and a personal call. It's a relational call. As those who are following Jesus Christ, as those who are filled with his Holy Spirit, we ought to be living Jesus' values into all of our relationships. That our relationships ought to be filled with self-sacrificing love, not in apathy and indifference. With inexhaustible joy rather than sourness and negativity. They ought to be this haven of, of comfort and peace rather than a storm of turmoil and chaos. We ought to be filled with patience. That King James calls it long-suffering. We ought to have long fuses instead of short tempers. We ought to be kind instead of rude, generous instead of selfish, faithful instead of giving up on each other. We ought to be gentle instead of harsh, self-controlled instead of explosive. And the way that we live towards each other in relationship transforms the kinds of relationships we have. In the, in the community of holiness, we ought to be filled with relationships where sin and offense is openly and gently addressed immediately, where, where um, sin is humbly admitted and acknowledged and embraced and forgiveness is quickly extended, not once or seven times, but 70 times seven times so that we are reconciled to each other fully just as God has reconciled us to him through Jesus Christ. They ought to be relationships where we are speaking truth boldly and clearly into each other's lives and holding each other accountable and yet doing it with such love that the person's primary sense walking away is that they have been unconditionally embraced and loved. We ought to speak words that build up rather than tear down. We ought to defer to each other, prioritize each other, submit to each other, um, Restore each other gently when we stumble and fall. Support each other wholeheartedly when we're going through periods of brokenness. These relationships ought to be the kinds of things where people look in from the outside and say, I've just never seen anyone ever anywhere relate to each other like these people do. You get a sense of what God is like. It's a spiritual call and a personal call and a relational call and it's a missional call. 
the holy community that lives like God does, that radiates his character, his nature into the world, that mediates God's presence into the world, is a community that stands with the poor and the broken and forgotten and ignored. The Bible says that the Christian religion is the religion that's for the orphan and the widow, those the system has excluded and who have no other advocates in the world. It's a religion for the poor, for the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned, and the, and the immigrant. As people from the community rush to be the first in line to give food and drink and clothing and comfort and company and hope, to those in need. And not just in a relief kind of way, but walking with them to becoming more and more complete human beings, walking with them through the agony of recovery and through the challenges of education and through the, the difficulties of the job hunt and, and of the apartment search and being their advocates in healthcare and, and in a myriad other ways, walking side by side with each other as we all become more of what God has created us to be. Not out of pity, but love. Not out of condescension, but equality. Not out of charity, but mutuality. Not out of as a savior, but as a friend living with each other as though we are Jesus in disguise and especially the poor and forgotten in a way that points them to the love of Jesus Christ that invites people to put their faith in Jesus Christ to trust him as their God and their savior and their leader so that they can receive healing and forgiveness and transformation and then teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded us teaching them to live into this kind of life that Jesus or that Peter describes as the holy nation the the community that reflects the nature of God into the world rather than living in some comfortable middle-class church bubble, far away from the messiness of life, we enter into life such that it is, so that we can be the people God has created us to be. As the way in which we make ourselves usable to, be, to do the things God has called us to do. It's true that in Christ, yous are used by God to change the world. But yous are only used by God if yous are going to be like God in the way that you live. You will only ever get to do the things that God has called you to do to the degree that you're willing to be the person that God has created you to be. You can only be a part of the kingdom of priests if you've first given yourselves to be a part of the holy community. It's amazing. There was a research study done about Christians and people who don't follow Jesus and their search for meaning and how they search at roughly the same level for meaning and purpose in life. And the conclusion of the survey said it's amazing 
How many Christians struggle with the, with the meaning and purpose of life because the whole point of the Christian faith and of Christ's coming is to resolve the question of meaning and purpose. The meaning and purpose of life is this, to know and love and serve God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And I would add to love everyone else as much as you love yourself and to love the world with God's generous, generous compassion and justice. And if we can learn to be the people God has created us to be, we suddenly find ourselves enabled to do the things that God has called us to do, which we're gonna talk about next week. Let's pray together. Father, we live in such an activist world that's all about accomplishment and achievement and measurement and metrics and success and getting stuff done. And God, we, I find so often that I just rush past this conversation about who you've called me to be because I'm so interested in what you've called me to do. And God, would you help us take a step back and get our priorities in the right order to concern ourselves first with who you've created us to be, passionately devoted to you, finding healing and transformation in our lives, relating to each other in, in godly ways and being oriented as you are to the world so that we can become usable by you to do the things you've called us to do. Only you can do this in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.